James Wong. He said that when he was growing up in Singapore, he used to always admire how the West was organized in terms of its healthcare. Looking at the outcome of COVID, he wonders what young Singaporeans think now. Because, of course, you know, the countries that have been worst hit and the countries that have been worst organized sometimes are those in Europe. African and Asian countries, which had experienced uh, Ebola and SARS, were prepared. We weren't. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to Premier Christian Radio. You've joined us for The Profile, where we talk to a different Christian about their life, faith and testimony. And I'm pleased to say that my special guest on the show this week is Eddie Arthur. Eddie is the former CEO of Wycliffe Bible Translators, and he has over 30 years of experience in mission and translation. Eddie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sam. Good to be here. So we always like to start out by hearing something of a person's early life growing up and how they became a Christian. So do you want to share some of your story with us? Yeah, um, I, I grew up in the northeast of England, and that sort of appears in my accent from time to time. My dad was a coal miner, uh, and my mum sort of was the thing at the time, stayed at home. They married and lived in a small a, a pit village called Seam, a small town south of Sunderland. Um, but by the time I was born, they'd moved up into, into the big city, into Sunderland. Um, they'd been very involved in church when they were first married. And so there was a sort of religious atmosphere in the house. Um, but when my sec- um, I'm the third of four boys and my second brother was mentally handicapped, uh, quite severely so. And at that time they moved from, that was when they moved from CM into Sunderland. And I think sort of the, all of the things drawn together resulted in them sort of drifting away from the Lord and drifting away from church. They'd, they'd sort of lost their, their roots in the, in the um, church in the pit village. And so I was aware of Christian things. Uh, I was sent to Sunday school, but there was no real Christian atmosphere in the home. Until when I was 12, my dad died, died of cancer. Um, and at that point, my mum started going, going back to church. Um, my elder brother, Phil, who's just retired from being a Baptist minister, um, he became a Christian in my early teens. And then it was him on a, a church youth camp who led me to the Lord. I was sort of just aware that um, my life wasn't the way it should be, that there was something that wasn't there. I was doing all the right religious stuff, but um, a youth camp in Northumberland, I um, became a Christian and wow. all the stuff that I'd known before suddenly made sense. Yeah. Isn't that interesting, though, that you can you can be going to church, you can even have Christianity in your upbringing, and yet there still needs to come a point where it all clicks together? Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, it was a, a very definite point where it happened. For other people, it happens over time. But you do have to make some sort of personal commitment to this to, um, you know, respond to what Jesus did on the cross. Um, it, it's more than just going to church and being religious. 
Yeah. And where do you think the um, interest in mission came from? You've already explained, you know, for you, there has to be a personal commitment, a response to the message of Jesus. And and you've gone on since then. A huge part of your working life has been involved in mission, in, in spreading that message. Where do you think the, the interest in, in sharing this with others, where do you think that came from? Um, I didn't prompt you for the question, but it's a very good one at this point. Um, the tradition from the church that I was going to, and I'd been on the youth camp, was that on the Sunday evening, after the, you know, the, the camp was sort of Friday, Saturday, Sunday afternoon, and all the, the young people who'd been on the camp, smelly, not having washed for two days, would troop in with their um, backpacks and everything into, straight into the evening service. And so I went into the evening service. It's the first time in my life that a service really meant something to me. And I was you know, excited about it, but I hadn't slept really for two days. And the preacher was from the Belgian Evangelical Mission. And um, I fell asleep during the sermon. <laughs> it's the first sermon that I, you know, I ever felt a commitment to, and I fell fast asleep. <laughs> um, and that guy... He gave a, an after-church talk and was talking about the need for missionaries in Belgium and in France. And I went along, and at that point, I just, I'd been a committed Christian for 24 hours, and I heard the Lord saying to me, I want you as a missionary in a French-speaking country. Wow. That's very specific. Yeah, it was, you know, it... <sighs> It was like a bolt from the blue, um, and I, I didn't particularly know what to do with it. And, and that sort of sense of call, of vocation, was always in the back of my mind. I went on to do science O-levels, did a degree in biology, and then went on to do a postgrad, studying one enzyme in the broad bean plant. But always in the back of my mind was this sense that God wanted me as a missionary in a French-speaking country, which I assumed met Europe. Right. Yeah. Somewhere on this journey in my last year at university, I met Sue, who um, had just become a Christian herself, and um, she was studying French, which would have been useful, so I married her. Um, <laughs> more to it than that. But <laughs> just a little. <laughs> it did say just a little. Um, and coming towards the end of my time as a, as a postgrad, um, we started to just explore, you know, working with various mission agencies that work in Europe. And we never had the sense that this was right, that something was going the way it should do. Um, you know, we tried lots of doors and doors just weren't opening. Meanwhile, at a church uh, youth evening, there was a couple of missionary go to a Bubba Bar Church in Southampton. Uh, there are a couple of missionaries there in, in the church from Wycliffe Bible Translators. And um, they gave a presentation in the evening. And Sue was really interested because she's a linguist. I wasn't particularly interested, but I realised that the, um, the audience were even less so. So I asked lots of questions because I felt, you know, these folks had come along, they'd given a talk and they deserved encouraging. So I pretended to be interested. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, they 
saw this young couple who were obviously interested, even though I was just putting it on. Um, and basically they wouldn't leave us alone. And eventually they got us to agree to go to a weekend at Wycliffe just to find out about Bible translation. And we went there and it was like being hit by a truck. It was just so obvious that this is what God wanted for us. Um, Sue had always wanted to be a translator. So Bible translation made sense for her. My background as a scientist fit right into what's required for analyzing a language and developing an alphabet and working on grammar. And we discovered there was an awful lot of Bible translation needed in French speaking Africa. Now, I had this sense of call to French speaking yeah. world. Sue spoke French, you know, it all just came it together. It all just fit together. Yeah, amazing. It's very gracious. God said to me, go to a French speaking country, because that sounded like France or Belgium, which was quite attractive. If when I'd first become a Christian, God had said, go to Africa, I'd have right. stopped listening. Yeah. But so he worked on me in stages. Yeah. Well, just take me back to that initial moment where you said that you felt God speak to you at that meeting, the front of yeah. that church, just, just for someone who would wonder what that means and what that looks like. Are you able to describe it? I mean, presumably it wasn't a, an audible voice. So, so what exactly was it when you say God spoke so clearly and it was very specific French speaking country yeah. and exactly what you had to do. It, I mean, it, I imagine it's quite difficult, but are you able to put into words exactly what that looked like when you say God spoke? It's just an overwhelming sense that this is what um, God wanted for me. I mean, no, I can't explain it much more than that. One way I have likened it is um, when I was a student, one of my mates lived in a bedsitter and he once cooked himself some, some smoked haddock in his bedsitter. And every time you went to visit him for the next year, there was the smell of smoked haddock in that, <laughs> that bedsit. You know, you just couldn't get away from it. Just You'd be sitting there just chatting and then all of a sudden you'd sniff fish. And it was like that. I would just be getting on with my life and then all of a sudden in the background, French-speaking Africa. It was just a lingering odour, a bit better than smoked haddock, but <laughs> a lingering odour, a lingering sense in my life, you know, from um, the age of 16 to sometime in my mid-20s when it all came together. Yeah. You spent... Um a long time working with Wycliffe Bible translators. We should probably start with that word Wycliffe, very famous and well-known in theological and translation circles, but uh, there'll be some who may maybe haven't come across Wycliffe before. Can you give us a short idiot's guide to who that man was and why he's so important? Oh, I can never remember dates. Uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators is named for John Wycliffe, who was the first person to translate the Bible into, or to at least start translating the Bible into English. In the 1400s, if I remember rightly, he um, started a movement which became known as the Lollards of uh, street preachers. It was at a point, a point uh, where the Roman Catholic Church was very, very controlling um, and think could only be done in Latin. But Wycliffe had the convic conviction that people should be able to hear the Bible in their own language. And he published the first translation into English. In order to, to be involved in, in working in Bible translation, I mean, forgive me for, for stating the obvious somewhat, but I think especially when we look at it in a, in a missional context where actually it's going to cost you and your wife something to, to do this work, right? In certain things you'd have to give up, you'd have to uh, even move to a, to a new country. 
in order to do all of that, you have to have a pretty strong conviction and faith that that this is not just like any other book, right? That this really is this really is the word of God. So talk to me a little bit about that and, and kind of where that conviction came from. The background I come from places a high emphasis on the Bible. So, you know, to some extent that is is natural. But I found it works. My background is as a scientist. I experiment. I um, create hypotheses. And, you know, one of the hypotheses I've based my life on is you can trust what this book says. Um, That what it says about God, what it says about the human condition makes sense. And reading it, um, the Bible gives the best overview of human nature and of life on this planet. It makes more sense of it than anything else I know. Um, And because of that, I have the conviction that um, it's something that everyone should be able to read in a way that makes sense to them in their own language. The, the whole sense of that human beings aim to be better than they are, but can't live up to it. Um, that we have this sense of the world should be better, um, but we can't get there, is described in the sort of overall narrative of creation and fall that the Bible has, that we were made for a relationship with God, we were made perfect, and we rebelled. And I think we have that lingering sense in our lives of something better. And then the notion of God coming to to earth in human form and dying and rising again, and then God sending his spirit to live within his people. All of that makes intellectual sense to me. It describes the world around. But then experientially, as I've tried to live it, the Bible describes me pretty well. Um, and I've not come across anything else that does yeah. such a good job. It's uh, It's been said many times before that the best-selling book in this country is the Bible. And the reason it's not at the top of the of the charts every week is they just stop counting it because it sells so many copies. So I guess we, we we take for granted, don't we, the availability of the Bible in English. And there are so many different translations and so many different apps and so many different ways of reading the Bible. And you can read it free online and you can buy expensive leather bound versions. And it's, you know, for us as Christians, the Bible is everywhere. I guess globally that's that's it's not the same right um hence where your work comes in so just tell me a little bit of the global picture as to how readily available the bible is in other languages and other countries as well the bible is available in all of the major languages of the world so you know if you're a spanish speaker french speaker arabic speaker chinese speaker the bible is there but there are about two thousand distinct languages in the world that don't have the bible and those languages are spoken very often by people who are marginalised, by people who are impoverished, by people who are hard to reach. It's about 1.5 billion people don't have a Bible in their own language, so it's still a, a considerable number, still 2,000 groups around the world. And some of those groups would be tens of millions. You know, they're not all very small. So tell me a little bit of your personal story when it comes to this. I believe it's the Kuya people. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. 
Uh, that's pretty good. Kuya. Yeah. Kuya. Okay. The Kuya people. Um, tell me a little bit about um, your work with them when it came to Bible translation. I mean, how, where do you even begin with something like this? Where do you even begin with a, a people who, um, you know, they speak French, you speak English, obviously you knew, knew a bit of French, but then how do you, how do you then go about translating into this completely new area and part of the world? I mean, um, yeah, Sue already spoke French fluently. And before we went to Africa, we spent seven months in France to get my French up to right up to enough. So I, I'm pretty fluent in French. So it's getting rusty these days. We went and we lived in a village called Guabafla, um, surrounded by rainforest, uh, two small kids. That was entertaining. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was great for them, you know, no traffic. They could just play out all day and sunshine all the time. The first thing we had to do, we basically spent about two years learning the language. Um, It's very, very different to English. There is no clear sense of past, present and future tense in the way tenses in the way English does it. So the the French kind of you learning French was important because what that that was? That was the (laughs) lingua franca uh, um, in the country. So... um, we used French as a medium I see. For, for talking to people. It was the language that people used in school. Right. But as soon as they came home, they spoke Kuya. I see. So you needed to have a Bible in Kuya because that was the language that, they were speaking at home. Yeah, that was the language they used. It was the language yeah. of their heart. Um, and actually, very early on, we got an illustration of why um, Kuya, the need of translation. It was now the first few months there. Somebody was preaching on the... Uh, Jesus' baptism and the Holy Spirit settled on him like a dove. And you could see the preacher thinking, what's a dove? And eventually the word he used in Kuya was armians. Because I, I think he got, you know, the idea you can be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit must be an animal that can cover you. And the only animal that covers you is armians. And when they do, it's not nice. And he just got it, com- you know, Completely yeah. wrong. Just not knowing a simple word like dove. Interestingly, if it had been pigeon, he'd have known because he kept pigeons, but he didn't know about doves. And, you know, an easy thing like that. And, you know, the Holy Spirit comes from a symbol of peace to aggressive insects that can make your life a misery. Um, so we, we spent ages learning the language. Um, it's a tonal language. So the the musical note of a word changes its meaning. So, eh is me, eh is you, eh, eh. You know, so it goes on. So it was um, pretty hard going. When we convinced our our bosses that we understood enough Kuya, enough um, of the culture, together with church, the church leaders, we drew together a team to work on um, the translation, we were joining others there. So the work had already started and we did have an alphabet. Okay. The alphabet was developed as we, you know, it, it was uh, modified as we went along. But at least well, my, we, my next question was going to be, how does an alphabet work where you have a tonal language? Um, it's complicated. <laughs> I can I mean, imagine. The way that's, things tend to happen with newer alphabets that are developed is to use um, accents 
So you use an acute accent, an accent going up for something that's a high tone, a grave accent going down for a low tone and things like that. We started doing that in Kuya, but because some people could read French, they got very, very confused by the accents. And almost every word in Kuya is just one syllable. So um, what we did was we used punctuation marks. A hyphen in front of the word means low tone, an apostrophe in front of the word means a high tone. Clever. And actually there are four tones, but the two middle ones, they didn't need to be distinguished. So you're saying for, for years, it was really just a, a question of learning the language before you would then even think about putting the Bible into it. Tell me a little bit about where you got to. So by the time, I think you were there. Well, we were there for 12 years. 12 years. Um, 12 years. So tell me a little bit about where you got to, I guess, by the end of your time there. As we got to the end, we were fairly close to the New Testament being entirely in first draft. Um, the process of translation is, it's a slow one. Um, and what we would do is we would, um, I would read the passage in French and explain it to my career teammates. We talk it through and then they would re-express it in Kuya. Right. And we'd write that down. Having written it down, you know, we'd then go back and check it. There is no spell check in Kuya. So <laughs> getting all that stuff right is quite hard work. Then you take the passage out to community, to people who aren't Christians, read it to them, ask questions, find out what they understand. Um, and this can be really difficult because if people understand the passage wrong, your translation is wrong. And, you know, it's a constant process of being told you've got it. You need to go back and do it again. But once people were understanding the passage as they were meant to understand it, you then have a, an external consultant who comes along and just makes sure it's accurate uh, to the Greek. And then when you get to that stage, you're ready to publish. But of course, having done all of the Gospels, you then, as you've gone through, you find out that you've improved some things in Luke. So you can go <laughs> back and do Mark again. And, it, it, you know, it, it's an iterative process. So we had almost a, a complete New Testament in first draft by the time we left Ivory Coast. Um, when we left, I actually ended up with a leadership role in Wycliffe in the UK. I was heading up um, translator training across Europe. So Sue continued with our colleagues who were based in Northern Ireland, working at a distance with our Kuya co-translators. They came across to the UK a couple of times. Sue went to Ivory Coast. And eventually the New Testament was published in around, I think, 2004. But as soon as um, copies arrived in the port of Abidjan, a civil war broke out and they couldn't actually be distributed. So they sat in a warehouse for a long, long time till the country became more peaceful. And I think it was five or six years later, wow. that finally there could be a public um, dedication and ceremony for the Kuya receiving their New Testament. Wow, what a process. Yeah, it, it, it's slow. <laughs> I guess it requires patience. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I was quite glad not to be involved later on because I'm not very good at details. I was really good at the inspirational stuff of getting the first thing down on paper, you know, trying to work out how to say some of these. You know, 
Kuya doesn't have a series of words like but and therefore and since, which link sentences logically. I imagine, um, I mean, hearing you say that immediately makes me think of a book like Romans, perhaps being especially difficult to translate. But, but was there any part or any book of the New Testament that you found particularly hard? Yeah, Romans was Romans was difficult. Um, but uh, I mean, an illustration of how difficult it is that just early on in John, Jesus came to his own and his own didn't receive him. In English, in Greek, it's a contra expectation. Jesus came to his own. You'd expect his own people would receive him, but they didn't. Translate that straight into Kuya. Jesus came to his own and his own didn't receive him. The Kuya people read this as, of course they didn't receive him. They never do. Nobody receives Jesus. So you ha- we actually had to force it by saying, Jesus came to his very own, his own, <laughs> and they didn't receive him. And so by emphasizing the own, it illustrated the contra expectation because there's no word but. I guess that the real high point, as you say, of of actually getting these New Testaments distributed, you say didn't didn't happen for quite some time. Was there a moment or will there be a moment where you can sort of celebrate and pour yourself a glass of bubbly and say, we've done it? I, it it's that that happened a few years ago now. Um, I, but the nice bit is um, somebody sent us a photograph of a, an old guy sitting in church with his career up. New Testament open, sitting, reading it. Uh, this, this is a guy of a generation who, when he was at school, if he'd spoken Kuya at school, he'd have been beaten. Um, and there he is, sitting with his New Testament. So receiving that picture, I think, more than anything else, you know, because producing a, you know, producing a nice, shiny New Testament is one thing, but knowing that people are reading it and people are using it, that's the good bit. Do you want to stay informed on the best of what's happening in the UK church today? Premier Christianity magazine is for you. The UK's leading Christian magazine is published every month and features interviews with Christian leaders, in-depth reporting, reviews, columnists and loads more. And best of all, you can try it for free. Head to our website now to request the latest edition worth £5.95, completely free of charge. Visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. As you mentioned, you went on to do um, a lot more work with Wycliffe and became CEO. Tell me a little bit about your time um, at the quote-unquote top of Wycliffe. It was interesting because um, Wycliffe were looking for a new CEO and they were looking um, among the membership. And I, I basically wrote and said, I'm just not interested in this. You know, here are my thoughts on what should happen, but it ain't going to be me. And then the recruitment process didn't, you know, they didn't find anybody. And um, so much to my surprise, I found myself applying for the role anyway, even though I'd said, you know, a couple of months earlier, no way. And, and again, it was just a nudging sense that this is what God wanted me to do. And I always had the sense that um, there was something particular within that that I should be doing. I never saw myself. I never saw this as being a long term. Right, right on. I described myself as being a bridge. I just didn't know what it was a bridge to. But from, you know, where Wycliffe was, I saw there was a transition needed. I just didn't know what the transition was. At that time, we had a beautiful headquarters in Buckinghamshire. Some folks might have stayed there. Uh, Horsley's Green, very lovely place. But um, 
as I was spending, as I was CEO, found that more and more time and more and more energy was going into maintaining the center. Effectively, we were a, a conference center with a mission agency attached to it. The last couple of years, I wasn't CEO for long, just six years, but the last two years were spent working on a plan to sell the, the center and to move off. And so um, I, that's what happened. It, it wasn't very popular. A lot of my colleagues were very angry with me and some still are um, because, you know, that center was home to a lot of Wycliffe people. You know, it's, um, it's where we came. It's where we lived when we came back to the UK. You know, it was home for us. Our kids know it very well. Um, and there's a lot of emotion wrapped up. But it was clear, you know, from the, from the vantage point of the high point of being CEO, that um, it was actually holding Wycliffe back in its mission. Mm-hmm. that we were spending more time and more energy running the centre than we were um, getting involved in Bible translation. So we sold the centre. We were running a Christian conference business. We closed that business. Um, and my successor now just runs a mission agency. When I took things, when I took over, I actually had six businesses that I was running. My successor just has one, a mission <laughs> agency. I, I'm quite jealous of him. I've got a job now. But, um, you know, I, I can see that that's why I was there. As someone with a long history in the organisation, a, a deep commitment to the organisation, someone who was emotionally attached to the centre, I could move things forward in a way that an outsider couldn't. Mm. And so yes, I see. Yeah. I was there. Good to have a clear focus and purpose, I suppose, to that to that to that time and say, okay, this is what I feel God's called me to do. So, yeah. So just tell me a little bit about what happened after that and how people viewed you and, and how that, how that changed. Cause you, you wrote a really fascinating piece on this for us. Yeah. The piece I wrote was, I think entitled, I used to be important. You know, I, I found, ba- you know, basically that a lot of people who had, who would contact me, um, stopped that, you know, um, my phone stopped ringing. I stopped getting asked to, do things to speak at places. People were interested in the CEO of Wycliffe. They weren't interested in Eddie Arthur. Um, And I found that fascinating. But the reason I wrote the piece really is to do with my own reflection in that I really enjoyed the attention. And I found it, I didn't realise how much I enjoyed the attention until I stepped down. And, you know, at a point where we're seeing Christian leaders in difficulty, it just made me realise how much leadership is a bit, can be a drug. Yeah. And how much I had just enjoyed being the CEO, Mm. enjoyed having the title, enjoyed having the attention. And then when we stepped down, all of that fell away. And I felt quite empty inside in some ways. This is one of those things that you you don't realise you're enjoying, or you don't realise you've attached any sense of importance to it until it disappears overnight. Yeah, yeah. So how did you overcome that then? How did you, I guess, come to a bit of a better place in your in yourself in reflecting on all of that? Because it is a it's a big change. It's a big transition. And um, as you said, it sounds like you were you were surprised yourself at your own reaction. I suppose. Yes, I, I was. Um, I was very surprised. You know, when when you go from getting three hundred emails. 
a day, all of which are important. And, you know, interna- I used to do a vast amount of international travel. You know, now a walk down into the village with the dog is about as exciting as life gets. <laughs> and, you know, suddenly I stopped getting, you know, I stopped flying intercontinentally. I stopped getting all these emails. I was no longer in the know, you know, even if I didn't want to receive all these emails, I liked knowing what was going on. And then all of a sudden that all just stops. How did I get through it? I mean, partly just time, uh, partly growing up. You know, it helps to step back and reflect on the process and say, okay, I'm getting too much of my identity from my job. Actually, my identity should come from my relationship with Christ, from my family and, you know, from other places that are more healthy. Um, partly it, it helped that um, I, I went off and did a PhD in mission theology. Um, I, I mentioned that I'd been a postgrad back in the 1980s um, and I did a PhD then, but I never wrote it up because oh, okay. I, I was in a, a hurry to join Wycliffe. And so it, it was quite nice sort of late in my career, uh, almost 40 years later to sort of, take that off and Mm. and theoretically I just think that now I'm in my early 60s I am better stepping back and advising counseling others when they ask for it than being directly in a leadership role I think there are people who are younger than me who are better tied into culture and you know I have a degree of experience I help a lot of organizations I write a good deal but I think for the the point position of leadership, I think there are better, you know, there are better people than me for that now. And it's a different phase in life and learning to be content in that. Hmm. Paul said, I have learned to be content, content in all things. I've learned that I need to be content in all things. And occasionally I get there. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a work in progress. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned before that the decision to sell the conference centre arm of of Wycliffe was controversial. Did that have anything to do with you leaving in the sense you think, actually, this is is so unpopular, I'm not sure if I can or should stick around? That was part of my calculation. Um, But I, I thought, too, that having made a big change, it was better to bring, better to have somebody new who was adapting to the new situation because it would have been, you know, I'd have had to change my mindset in that role. And, I, you know, it was also, I could leave with a sense of accomplishment. Um, you know, I'd done what I was there to do. It took me four years to work out what I was supposed to be doing. But, you know, having done that, um, I could have stayed on, but, I, you know, there was a sense it was time to move on. And Yeah. Um, it's, it's always interesting to talk to someone like yourself who who has that really amazing and impressive academic background doing PhDs and studying, but also has been on the front line of mission doing something quite radical and new and very, yeah, very front line. Often you meet people who are more suited to one area than the others. I sometimes interview academics who will admit, look, I do the thinking, but in terms of how you apply this, I'm not the person to ask. Um, And I sometimes meet very radical missionaries who with the greatest respect to them, don't always have the theological um, underpinning. Am I right in thinking you've been able to straddle both of those worlds? Um, I, I mean, in some in some ways, it might be better to um, to ask somebody else whether I manage it. But yes, I, I think that's I think that's what I do. One of the um, 
clear outcomes of my PhD was a demonstration that there is a disconnect between what mission agencies are saying and what the academy is saying. And they're not talking to each other and there's no, there's not an adequate point of contact between the two. Can you um, give me an example of, of what's happening there and, and why it isn't working? Um, it's a bit geeky, but quite a, quite a lot is said and written in um, mission circles about formulation of mission, understanding mission as God's activity, the mission of God. Mm-hmm. And if you think that mission is first and foremost what God does, not what we do, it actually changes how you conceptualize everything. One writer, David Bosch, said, it is impossible to conceive of mission today without thinking of the mission of God, without thinking of the Missio Dei, to use the the Latin term. Well, most of the agencies I I interviewed and worked with in my um, PhD work don't ever refer to the mission of God. We've got the academics on one hand, and actually, even in church circles, the term is used. Mission agencies are not there. And, you know, I, I was able to show that there are a number of different areas in which mission theology has changed as we've learned more. You know, people say that the Bible doesn't change, so theology doesn't. Well, as you encounter new situations and as you gain experience, you bring different questions to the Bible. And so you learn new things. And mission agencies aren't always keeping up with what people are thinking. But equally, the academics are not rooting it in the practice of mission. And I think there is a disconnect in there. Having been on frontline of mission work, do you think it gives you a sense of perspective, I mean, especially living in another country, does it give you a sense of perspective on the UK church and even the Western church and some of the squabbling that goes on? I mean, with regards to translation, I immediately think of those who English speakers who will insist on only one translation of the Bible, the classic example being people who say you have to read the KJV, the authorised version of King James, that is the word of God and no other translations work. Does that whole kind of debate and argument and the way people will will write lengthy blog posts and shout each other on Twitter over that, you must must give you a sense of perspective when you go somewhere where they don't have any scriptures in their own language and you think, what on earth are we squabbling about back home? Does it do that, you know, going to another country and doing that kind of work? Give you that sense of perspective? I think in a lot of areas, um, returning missionaries are not people that church leaders really want to have in their church because too often we we get curmudgeonly and we, you know, the things that seem to be impressing, pressing issues in in the UK were not, you know, uh, I shouldn't say it in general, but you know, I, I I know others who have the same sense of dissatisfaction that mm. I have. Yeah. Certainly arguments over translations. They're all, they're all excellent. They have their strengths. They have their weaknesses. Get over it. You know, there are 2,000 languages don't have a single word. Let's like, you know, get a sense of, sense of proportion. One area that um, I, I, I'm passionate about is that, um, you know, the church is growing worldwide. We are struggling here. And yet still so often we see ourselves as being the arbiter of what is good Christianity. You know, we know it, the rest of the world doesn't. Well, perhaps we could just sit back and learn from our African brothers and sisters. Yeah, they can learn from us, but we can learn from them too. And so often we see mission, we see relationships with the rest of the world in one dimension 
we give, yes. we don't take. And I think the one thing that I, I'm really passionate about is that the British church has to learn to receive from the wider world. What you said reminds me of one of the um, one of the best Christian books I've read in the last few years, actually, Lessons from the East by yeah. Bob Roberts Jr. And he makes the point that it's time to look beyond people who look like us and speak the same language and learn, learn from others. And I think the way he's done that has been quite impressive in, in modelling that in his own ministry. But there is a tendency, I think, especially for us Brits, perhaps, there's a tendency for us to look at the American megachurches or you know what yeah. seems to be working over there or even some of the people... Um, I mean, even some of the people we feature in the magazine doing amazing stuff. But actually, are we featuring people in Europe and Africa and Asia as much as we should do? Perhaps not. Yeah. And and I think, too, with so many um, African, Asian Christians coming to live in the UK, we've got so much to learn. I mean, I think there is a big issue in that, um, you know, a lot of the African churches aren't particularly adapted to a European setting. And they've got steps that they need to take if they're going to be able to help the British church. But we have to learn from, you know, there has to be a meeting there. You you mentioned yourself, uh, I think the phrase you used was that it, we in the, the UK church is, is failing. I don't know if you put it in such strong terms, but certainly if you compare the church in the UK to the church in China, you could make that argument, right? You can make the argument yeah. that, that churches in the UK tend to be closing their doors and be turned into flats. Um, and you know, I, I speak to a lot of people, even on this on this podcast and this radio show, I talk, st- speak to a lot of people who are still very optimistic and say, but there are green shoots. But even so, I mean, every metric I could look at, every graph, every statistic I can show you would suggest that generally the UK church is not in a particularly healthy or growing position. The million dollar question, of course, is why? Um, well, I think, that, I mean, the, there are green shoots, but they're, well, but they're almost all African, Caribbean, Latin American and Asian, you know, where the church is growing strongly in the UK is in big cities amongst immigrant populations. You know, number of Iranians who are becoming believers is phenomenal. Why Westerners? I, I think one, one of the issues is just our, our um, sort of background worldview and philosophy, which is so anti-supernatural um, and so individualistic we we don't see a place for a religion which is based on a redeemed community a community united in christ um i i think there is to some extent a sense in which um god has room you know the the image from um the le- the letter to ephesian to ephesus in revelation of the church losing its first love and God withdrawing his candlestick. And I think to some extent we're seeing that, Um, you know, yes, it is nominalism that is declining, but, you know, generally the church is is not thriving. Mm. And Andrew Walls, he is the most important Christian writer that most people don't know into his eighties now, but still writing. He's a professor of church history up in Scotland. And he, he has shown the way that, Throughout history, the church has shrunk at the centre and sprung up at the margins. So Jerusalem was the centre, Greece and Turkey were the margins. Within 30 30 years, there was hardly any church in Jerusalem, and the centre was North Africa, Greece, Turkey, and then it moved to Rome, um, shrunk there, grew elsewhere, 
but that this is a continuing process and that perhaps we're living through a replication of that where the church is declining in Europe, which was the center of Christianity for so long and springing up at the margins in Africa and Asia. It's a fascinating theory, isn't it? Yeah. Eddie, I've really enjoyed talking to you um, for many reasons, but one of them has to be, this is probably the first interview I've done or the first, even the first conversation I've had where we've spoken about such fascinating topics for a good 40, 50 minutes and haven't mentioned coronavirus. How, how is coronavirus affecting mission? I've, I've heard varying reports, if I'm honest, about what's happening internationally. I know there were early on in the pandemic, there were great concerns about Africa and people saying, look, if you think we've got COVID bad in the West, wait until this hits nations where they don't have the healthcare system built in. I've heard reports since though that would suggest actually it's it's thank God not being as bad in some of those nations as we'd feared. What's your um, take on on how COVID has affected not just the countries that you are very close to and you've worked in, but but how it's affecting mission more generally as well? I think um, what COVID is doing is speeding up processes that were already underway. You know, we, we're seeing a, sh- a shift in Christianity. We're seeing a shift in mission from the north. To the, to the southern continents, and um, that is increasing. I think one thing that is remarkable is the way that COVID has shown the decline of the West. James Wong, um, who's a, a botanist, he appears on TV and um, on Gardner's Question Time, he said that when he was growing up in Singapore, he used to always admire how the West was organized in terms of its healthcare and everything else. Looking at the outcome of COVID, he wonders what young Singaporeans think now. Hmm. Because of course, you know, the countries that have been worst hit and the countries that have been worst organized sometimes are those in Europe. African and Asian countries, which had experienced uh, Ebola and SARS were prepared. We weren't. And I think um, one of the one of the outcomes for mission will be that the automatic respect that was given to Western countries and the Western Church won't be there in future. Um, but also, I, I think one issue that is really important is that lockdown here it's a social, it's a mental health problem. You know, we're lonely. We want to see our families. For so many people in places, big cities, where they live day to day, and if they don't work, they don't get paid. If they, you know, if they can't go out, they can't eat. So there's a lot going on. It's very interesting. It seems to be what you're saying is Western nations might have done slightly better in terms of the the economy, where, you know, there's been furloughing and... Yeah. People have got large, not not in every case, of course, but people largely got by. But but as you say, on the actual spread of the virus, we haven't done so well because we weren't prepared for it. Whereas some of these other more developing nations, because of Ebola, they were prepared for um, prepared for for the actual health crisis. It's it's the economic side of things that yeah. they're struggling more yeah. with. Yes, I think I think that's fair enough. I mean, you know, there are some countries that weren't prepared at all. Um, you know, Brazil is doing very badly and. Um, others, but there seems to be the possibility too that um, the virus thrives more in temperate climates, so it may be advantageous to have more sunshine and warmer temperatures. I wanted to to finish by asking a a question actually about mission, and I know Christians for a long time now have been saying 
that we believe in both words and action. We believe in helping people practically and we believe in giving them a gospel message. And I know there's been a tendency to not want to separate out those two things, but to do mission holistically and both matter. Even so, though, would you not agree that it seems easier, easier than ever to talk about mission in terms of practical help? And even in the way the church is, is arguably increasingly respected amongst government and politicians for the food banks and for everything else. Yeah. And yet when it comes to speaking about conversion, evangelism, yeah. discipleship, the challenge of the gospel, have we shied away from that a little bit? Yes, I, th- I think we have. I think, um, I think it's, it's a general tendency. Um, I wrote an article a few years ago saying holistic mission isn't. Because when people tend to talk about holistic mission, they ignore the proclamation. Um, it's not what holistic mission is supposed to be, but it is in practice very often what it is. Um, and again, I think it's one of those things where we really need help from some of our brothers and sisters around the world who find evangelism more natural than we do. Um, you know, I think there are societal reasons why we find it difficult. Um, we don't like pushing our ideas on people. There's an issue of post-colonial guilt and all things like that too. But, you know, I I think we have to demonstrate our faith. If we're telling people that God loves them and we don't show it, then our words are are vain. Mm. But equally, if, if we're trying to show it and not explaining what we're doing, it's not going anywhere either. So I think um, we've got to get that balance. But generally in the UK, we're not as good at being open about our faith and sharing why we believe what we believe as we should be. Well, that's a challenging thought and uh, one of many that we've heard in the last few minutes. Eddie, Arthur, thank you so much for joining me on The Profile. It's been a real pleasure. You're more than welcome, Sam. Thank you. It's been fun.